Josh Clifton of Raven Hill is here with the antidote. Josh, it's been a while, man. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, man. Uh, uh, I think you were the first podcast I ever did, uh, interview-wise. It was back, what was Cornerstone? Last Cornerstone? Cornerstone. Can you believe it? Yeah, thanks for having me back. It's great. Yeah, because we met at the final Cornerstone Festival back in 2012. Yeah. You were originally from Southern Illinois, I mean, which really isn't too far from the festival grounds. So what did Cornerstone mean to you? Uh, it meant the world to me. Um, me and uh, my best friend, David Curtis, who uh, we grew up in the same Southern Illinois area, and he was in a band called Sidewalk Slam and Run Kid Run. And we grew up in that area, and we made it our, I don't know, you would think it was our, our job to make it to shows regardless where they were. If they were in the Midwest, we drove. So when we found out about Cornerstone in 1997, I think was my first year, oh, we had to go. I mean, like it was, our, our, our hardest part was convincing our youth group that everybody would have a good time. And they did, but it was mostly selfish reasons because we wanted to go. <laughs> um, and and I, I went every year, but I think I missed one year uh from 1997 till the end the last year and that was before you were performing oh yes definitely like i went through every stage of the cornerstone goer i was i was the youth group kid and then i was the probably the rebellious i don't know thought i was too cool for the majority of people there and then uh you know i ended up coming around like i remember watching some of my favorite bands playing cornerstone I mean, I could name billions, <laughs> like MXPX to Blindside to, you know, uh, uh, Five Iron Frenzy to, you know, uh, even see my friends Run Kid Run and Sidewalk Slam play in the wedding. I sat up there and I, when I saw them do it, I go, oh, this is this is a possibility to actually your band to play Cornerstone. That That's wild. So I remember uh, saying, well, it's my dream to not only play Cornerstone, but to be asked to play and to play to a full tent. I guess we should mention that for people that aren't aware, Cornerstone was hugely influential. Oh, yeah. I think it changed the climate uh, of Christian and non-Christian underground music. Um, you're, when you're given a stage to, to people like MXPX and, and other Tooth & Nail artists that maybe wouldn't have gotten that first big push. I mean, I just I just remember showing up at Cornerstone and seeing 30,000 people there and going, this is my family. You know? <laughs> I just couldn't believe it. And then you had music for everyone, whether you're into punk rock or hardcore. Or I remember they had a gothic uh, tent and, and you, you had it for everyone. They even have a dance barn. So, I mean, I, I was sad to see it go. But, uh, but man, I have fond memories of Cornerstone. But now I've heard you got thrown out of Illinois and you had to move to Nashville. Yeah, they, they, I guess they were tired of me. No, uh, no, it always, it always made sense to, um, you know, I love Southern Illinois and I love being from that area and, and being close to St. Louis and everything. And we had a lot of family and, and friends there and, and our first supporters were there. But it just really made sense. Instead of moving to like Los Angeles or New York, it made sense to maybe move to Nashville if I was really wanting to try to find a hub and and be around like-minded people to really spur me on and push me to become a better artist 
you know, unfortunately, Southern Illinois, as great as it has been for music, in my opinion, like I think Illinois and maybe even some of Indiana and Kentucky and, and Missouri had some great talent come from that area. But it's it's one of those things where I think it was time for us to to move. And it wasn't an easy decision, but Nashville was the obvious, obvious choice. Well, not just as a band, but you're doing other stuff down there. You do the Youngblood podcast. Yeah, man. I, I, I've been doing that for uh, almost a year. And um, I guess uh, if people that haven't heard of the Youngblood podcast, it's been very surprisingly um, successful. And I didn't think it would be, <laughs> to be honest with you. And what's funny is I guess that's a lot to do with like a lot of what I do. Like Even whenever I started Ravenhill... Um, if people want to go back to like, I think I, I looked it up. I think, uh, I was on your podcast, October 10th, 2011. Um, and a lot has changed since then. But one thing that, that didn't change was like the surprise will love it as much as they do. Um, I remember saying, well, I'm going to always make music, but no one's going to want me to sing soulful and no one's going to like that. Why would they like that? It's the same way uh, with the podcast. I kind of thought I have some pretty interesting friends and pretty successful friends. And I, I thought we sit there and talk about music all the time. Why not put a microphone in front of us, whether we're over a cup of coffee or, or whatever, and really uh, just dive into. Oh, sorry, I got I got a little one running around. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, man. No, but but um, to sit down and think about like if there was a a soundtrack to their life that led them to be the musician that we loved them came to love them, then I want to hear that soundtrack to bring back Cornerstone. Uh, I've mentioned MXPX already a couple of times, but I remember me and David Curtis one time we found some press passes and uh, we may have gotten them um, by uh, just taking them off of a card. But we, we knew that MXPX was doing a press conference and we wanted to be in there. And I remember him as uh, someone saying, what was your influence for this last record? And he said, well, I listened to Elvis Costello's This Year's Model and Rich Mullins. So I remember as soon as I got home from Cornerstone, I went and bought uh, Rich Mullins' Greatest Hits album and Elvis Costello's This Year's Model. So, oh, man. Talk about divergent styles. For real. And, and it... I felt like I had a deeper uh, understanding of that record. Um, uh, the record they were talking about is The Ever-Passing Moment and, by MXPX. And it was one of those things where I thought, I, I kind of understand it maybe a little bit more because I got to hear part of his process or what influenced him to get there. And I was probably looking into it maybe a little too deep or trying to find, find truths in there where there weren't. Like I was like, oh, you probably got this from this. But it probably was just me being a young kid uh, wanting to think that I was like the biggest fan in the world. But <laughs> Well, how about we steal that same question and put it back to you? All uh, right. So, okay, what music inspired you to produce the music that you create? Um, I, I, I felt like I've kind of refined this question since I ask it all the time on the Youngblood podcast. I, I kind of found out that like we tend to be blenders. Um, actually, uh, someone you had in the podcast recently, Sean Michelle, is a really good friend of mine, and I had him on the podcast. He's the one person that like, I feel like I talked to, and I was like, man, that guy definitely knows more about music than I do. 
And he said one time, we're blenders, and whether it's good music or bad music, we're, it's influencing us one way or another. But if I was to have to nail down certain people, it would be Ray Charles and Johnny Cash. Uh, and a lot of people go, oh, those are typical answers. But uh, I grew up in a home where I wasn't allowed to listen to even hard Christian music, and I could listen to oldies or contemporary Christian music. And I dove into all that. Uh, I was a huge fan of Carmen, but I was also a huge fan of you know Led Zeppelin and Jim Croce and and all that. I interned for a few years at an oldies radio station that I ended up working there um, because I absolutely loved old music. I just I just thought there was something great about the hook and something the way that Johnny Cash and Ray Charles delivered music. It felt like if they didn't deliver it that way, it was going to kill them and. I hope that's what happens when people see us live is uh, the way I sing and the way I deliver a song. I believe every word and it would kill me if I felt like I was doing anything that wasn't genuine. Well, it's interesting that you bring up those two artists because Ray Charles and Johnny Cash both have really distinctive vocal styles. That fits with you too. You have a really distinctive voice. Oh, thanks. Uh, I, I always think that I have a cliche voice, so that feels good to hear that. <laughs> but I think everyone's kind of like their own critic, and no one likes, you know, it's kind of one of those things where you listen to yourself after you left a voice message, and you go, oh, that's my voice? Dang it. I thought I sounded like Robert Goulet or something. No, um, but thank you, man. I appreciate that. You know, part of me is like, when I heard Ray Charles for the first time, or not for the first time, but the first time I bought a record and listened to him, and I realized that, like, the way he delivered it, I knew that, I don't even know how to explain it, that I think only a few people can tap into with the way they deliver. And it almost, there's a disparity. And it's almost painful the way they deliver the song because it's a love-hate relationship. If you write a song that's about heartache, for me, I almost have to be in that moment of heartache every time I deliver that song but you're loving the way you're doing it. So you kind of, uh, it's conflict, you know, uh, but I love it. I mean, I'm not complaining by any means. <laughs> that being said, like Johnny Cash is another one. I always think that like, man, I hope when I'm older, my voice really has that low, like steady as a train type deliverance or whatever. <laughs> That's a perfect way of putting his voice steady as a train. You're right. Let's go back to the start of Raven Hill. That was 2009. What kind of sound were you looking for? I don't think I knew. Uh, on the new record, the new record's called Soul. And the reason I called it Soul is because I, I felt like, well, it's a music style, but it's also you know, who we are, our essence. And the first line in the song Soul uh, is like, good Lord, I need your mercy. And like, has that... And that was the very first thing we wrote. I wrote. It was me and a couple friends in, in my living room in Southern Illinois, in West Frankfort, Illinois. And we kept doing that over and over. And I was on an air organ, and a friend was on a bucket, and, and the other friend was on a uh, acoustic guitar. And we just kept doing that thing over and over. And I remember looking at everyone and just saying, I think this is something special. Uh, I'm just not sure. Like, I've never sang like this. I've always wanted to. You could tell I was listening to a lot of soul music and Ray Charles and Otis Redding and stuff like that. But 
I don't know. I, I, and, and I thought everyone would, if I came out and sang like that, everyone would think I was a fraud um, because I'm white. But people, I'm sure, can tell that I'm white. Um, but it's, it's one of those things that I really, uh, I remember some great guys, John and Chris Wright. They're from Southern Illinois, and they were going to school here in Tennessee, uh, Middle Tennessee University. They had some uh, free recording time. They had a great studio there. And he, they go, do you want to record a couple songs? And I was like, totally. And we were only a band uh, like for a month. It was only me. And then I had several musicians that filled in. And I remember John Wright one time coming up to me and going, do you want horns on this? And I go, well, I don't want to be a ska band. But if it's like Elton John or Ray Charles type horns, or even James Brown where it's almost like whenever James isn't singing, the horns are. Um, I was like, yeah, I would love that. So he wrote some stuff on piano and threw it behind me. I thought it was phenomenal. And we ended up hiring a, uh, a brass section and, and they knocked it out in an afternoon. And I just couldn't believe it. But if you've listened to Ladies and Gentlemen, I Present to You, which is our first EP, you can tell there's it's a di- totally different band than what we are today because... I didn't really know what we were becoming. You know, I was still trying to figure out, do I sing like this? Uh, do I go for the big band sound and try to find a horn section and uh, backup singers and uh, piano driven along with guitar and stuff like that? Or do I go, there's one song on that record called Sweet Vanity. And that was the other side of it where we did like dirty rock and roll. So I came to a fork in the road and said, do I do dirty rock and roll or do I do the big band uh a little bit of the funk stuff. And one day I absolutely love the dream is to have uh, Raven Hill and do a thing called Raven Hill and the Blackbirds where it's uh, me just singing, have three girls in black dresses singing back up, a horn section, and and we do a little bit more cleaned up, like soulful uh, funk versions of our songs or just have new songs in general for that. But of course, the album Soul, which is the new album coming out February 24th, right. it's much more stripped down than, ladies and gentlemen, I present to you. Oh, totally. This record's been a long time coming out. We've had a lot of good problems, I guess I should say. Um, and thank God our, our fans have been patient with this. You know, this record, if it comes out on February 24th, we record it February two years prior we were in the studio recording it and two years on one record is almost suicide. Um, but uh, we found the right partnership with the producer. We produced with, uh, Mitch Dane, uh, at Sputnik sound. Sputnik sound has partnered with a lot of great bands like the black keys and Jack white and, and bands like that. Wow. So it made sense. And we recorded straight to tape and really tried to capture the essence of, our live show um you know we get told a lot and i think a lot of bands get told this that man your record's great but live you're just so much better and i think that'll probably maybe sometimes be all uh, may always be the case but doesn't mean we're not going to try to make the record sound as as close to that live performance and the way the crowd feels in that live setting we're trying to capture that on a record and you do because you have a dynamic live show and I know sometimes that's hard to translate to a recording. Yeah, I, 
I, I'm people better than me in uh, recording and and producing and maybe even being musicians have figured that out. Um, but I can tell you, like some of the best bands I've ever seen, I've enjoyed their records. But live is always better, and and I'm okay with it. I just recently saw the Foo Fighters at the Ryman Auditorium, and man, they're one of my favorite bands of all time. And at the same time, live, I was just blown away. I did I didn't think I could like them much more than I already did. And live, they're just so much better. And it made me feel pretty good because that's something we get told a lot: is like, I like your record, but the live show is so good. Well, I'm I, I love that. I love that every time you come see me, it's going to be a different... See Ravenhill, not me. There's more than just me in this band now. Um, <laughs> Seriously. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, but I, I love that if you come see us, that, that you're not going to see the show that we played the night before. And you're probably going to see a show that's never going to be done again because we do a lot of things off the cuff to make sure we're on our toes. We never want to be on our heels. We, we want to always be running towards something new i just don't want to get comfortable to be honest with you and i think we've found the right team to do that with where we, we the record's going to be coming out with the record label slow speak records uh mm-hmm. which has had other great bands on it like sons and golden youth and fever fever and they just signed a band called talkie that's phenomenal and uh pioneer but uh a lot of that stuff was because we built relationships over the past two years and um the two guys that run that, James and Davey, Davey Basinger was in a band called Bleach back in the day. Um, they really saw something special in us, and we always wanted to work with the label that made us feel like they wanted to be with us as much as we wanted to be with them. Because to be honest with you, the past two years, we've been talking to several labels, and other labels we talked to, which were some of my favorite labels ever, made me feel like they were doing me a favor. And so it just didn't seem right to be on a record label that we didn't feel like a family. True, because I've heard other artists talk about, you know, the horror story of the record label that they hooked up with. Right. And it can be a bad experience. Yeah, I was terrified, man. I was absolutely terrified. There are so many people that maybe listen to this go, oh, you poor thing, you had record labels uh, interested in you. But... I don't, Raven Hill is something so uh, precious to me in the sense of I, don't, I wouldn't want to do anything to cheapen that. And partnering with another company, you know, there's usually money involved and sometimes money can be put to timeline on, on a band or an artist. And usually that timeline is pretty short. Uh, there were several times we thought we're not going to assign to a label. We're going to stay independent. And we're in a time that you can be, but... Man, I just, I just absolutely love Slow Speak. They're innovative, they're smart, and they really do know how to take care of a band and have a family atmosphere and still be successful in the process. Back to your own album. I'm really loving Witches. Talking yeah. about casting out demons, you know, and exposing faults in others. But you nail it when you say, okay, we ignore our own sin. You know, oh, so you're, you're firing both barrels at Christians, man. <laughs> you're not making it easy on me right now, are you? No way. Um, we don't play a lot of Christian shows. We, we end up being asked to play bars and clubs more than anything. But it seems like the Christian shows we play are normally festivals. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's really neat. I have nothing against um, 
playing Christian shows. Actually, we will play just about anywhere. Uh, Christian, non-Christian, we played in a gay bar before. I don't know if you knew that. And it was phenomenal. It was great. But I do think that we don't have a clue what it means to love people. And when Christ said to love one another, I don't know if we necessarily understand that. Christians and non-Christians, but we're called to love one another. But I think it was Billy Graham that said, and I'm sure I'm going to get emails about how I messed this up. Um, (laughs) The Holy Spirit convicts, God judges, I'm just supposed to love. And that speaks volumes to me because I keep hearing Christ say, he without sin cast the first stone. Mm -hmm. And man, Dave, I'm, I'm the first to tell you that there are things in my life that are not an accurate representation of Christ. And I'm constantly striving to eliminate those things and, and, and replace those with truth. You know, honestly, uh, not to sound suicidal, but witches is more probably geared towards myself than anything. I'm probably putting that double barrel shotgun to myself more than anything. Uh, because how many times have I done things in the past that I tagged God onto it, but it was for my own self pride or or hey, look at me, I'm I'm super spiritual. <laughs> um, I feel like there's a lot of people that can relate to that, you know. And and at the same time, I don't want want there to seem like a condemnation at all. I just want people to think about why we do things. A lot of times, God doesn't need our help. Um, he allows us to be a part of it. Uh, he's going to be God, whether I try to make a movement happen or not. I just want to be a part of that movement and I have to make myself available. So I think that's what that song's about. There's a lot of people, including myself, uh, including Ravenhill, that um, sometimes we do things and we think this is what God wants us to do, but then we end up putting God's name through the dirt and, and, and we're supposed to be holy and sometimes we're not holy. Uh, we're not separate from everything that's filthy. And that's something that I think that song speaks volumes about. And I think that's what came of it anyway. I hope that's what comes across. I hope it doesn't seem like I'm saying to hell with the church. Because <laughs> that's not what, I, that's not what I'm, I'm meaning at all. Yeah, I could uh, put myself in that box years ago where it was us versus them. And fortunately, I came to realization that, you know what, I am so wrong. Yeah, I think we all come to that. I think a lot of people, a lot of my friends that are not necessarily Christians or maybe homosexuals or whatever, you know, they they have a belief that Christians are sitting there waiting to just judge or or, or we give a representation that God is up there just waiting to slap our hand when we do something wrong or ready to condemn us to hell. And I don't think that's the case at all. I think that uh, we are called to love people and... Uh, I have plenty of friends that have um, that are homosexuals that have confided in me and and asked me my opinion and and if they ask for my opinion I'll give it you know and I stand firm to what the Bible teaches and and, and everything but we're not supposed to condemn people uh, at the same time I'm sitting there going there are things in my life that uh, I'm constantly weeding out because I want to be the best representation of what it means to be holy and what it means to be a, a, a Christian. Man, I had just have I don't I don't feel like I have any business telling someone um, other than what the Bible says what's right and wrong. Man, whether it's the Westboro Baptist Church or unfortunately young Christians sometimes get it wrong. 
they're striving so, so much to be right that they forget the human element, I guess. I don't know how to say that correctly. That's perfect. The, they forget the human element of the lost person or the person that's struggling or the person that's looking for answers but doesn't know how to get it. And then you come across so cut and dry that you forget to love them. I, I've talked to a lot of those friends of mine that have been hurt by the church and I said, I'm real sorry. I, as, as a Christian, I'm, I'm real sorry that, that you were hurt. And I would ask you, please, uh, be patient with them because I used to be like that. Our, uh, our old guitarist, Dane, um, who is no longer with us in the band, but he's still one of my best friends. Um, I, I had to ask for forgiveness for him because his mother um, passed away a couple years ago for, from cancer. And I remember we had a Bible study and me and some of my friends went over to their house and we were like, we're going to pray and, and God's going to deliver uh, your mother from cancer. And this is because God said so. And, it's not that what we were saying wasn't true. It wasn't that God doesn't deliver and he's not the same God that uh, rose Lazarus from the dead or set the Israelites free and they walked on dry land and walked on water. He's the same God that does that. And he can do all that stuff now. Why would I put limits on God and, and Christ and him in me? But we forgot to love her and love Dane in the process. So all we did is come in there almost like a militia kick open the door and say, we're going to get healed. We're going to get healed, 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 healed. And we forgot to say, you know, Jesus loves you and, and, and do it in the way she could receive it. And I'm not saying that she would have been healed uh, of that if we had done it differently or whatever. You know, God has a plan that sometimes we don't understand. But I knew that I felt like we did more harm than good. And enough to where I had to uh, years later go, Dane, I'm real sorry. Because me and my wife went through something similar, and I felt the same way. I felt like the people that came to pray for us made me feel like maybe maybe it was my fault that we were going through this hard time. And like they're just there to get a job done, and that's it. Yeah, and and really, it's usually um, usually they don't realize they're doing it. They they think they're and, and they are for the most part speaking truth. They just forget the human element of it and that love. And, and sometimes that's the biggest part of it that we're forgetting. And, uh, I have no hard feelings against those people because I knew in their heart, they were trying to do something that I wanted to be done. Um, you know, to get, get real, real, uh, and not to be a downer or anything, but me and my wife had a miscarriage and that's what happened. Um, the hardest day of my life was the day that the, oh, actually, the hardest weeks of my life were the two weeks that my wife had a stillborn baby in her and waiting for the body to reject the baby. And um, and I had friends come up to me and pray for us. But there was some that made me feel like me and my wife's lack of faith or acceptance of trying to move past it was the reason why that baby was not being healed. But their hearts were in the right place, Dave. It was just one of those things where, like, I had to learn and forgive, I guess, their their process because it wasn't the way that I and my wife could receive it the right way, I guess. It's hard as a, as a husband and a father. During that process, you're about as helpless as you can be. And you see the person you love more than anything in the world going through something, and all you can do is sit there and hold their hand and cry with her. And 
you start saying almost ridiculous things. You almost saying like, I should have went to medical school. Like that was going to fix everything. You know, I mean, like it's silly. And you start hating yourself because you can't protect your family. And that's where God opened up a, a more understanding of him being really our comforter and our provider and our deliverance because I can't be there for my family all the time. There are some times that I'm going to be going to be helpless and I got to trust that God is going to keep my family safe and, and help us through it and g- give us the strength through it one way or another. Yeah. We just got real deep, didn't we? We did. <laughs> I knew it wasn't going to be easy, but this is okay. Yeah. I'm good with that. The Antidote's here with Josh Clifton of Ravenhill. On Soul, you've also included a few songs from the past, like Oh Mercy and Wicked Man. Why yeah. did you think those songs needed a retelling? Um, Oh Mercy was the first full song we ever wrote, and I always thought it had something special. Whenever we were in the studio with Mitch, we rewrote just about every song to some extent, whether it was a little tweak here and there or... Uh, like in Old Mercy, where we added that whole, what Mitch called the super chorus. I remember one time we, were, we sat there with acoustic guitars and ran through all the songs. And we probably showed them about 15 songs and we picked the best 10 out of those 15. And, uh, um, and I remember him going, what would be really cool is what if you put a super chorus here? And I go, Mitch, if you call it a super chorus, I'm definitely going to want to put it in there. Um, what's better than a chorus? A super chorus. That part that's like, whoa, 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 whoa. And it had the gang vocals. And um, and then I rewrote the the um, the chorus of Oh Mercy. And I really like the way it had come together. It's almost revisiting a song, but it's almost like you would want to call it a different song, like Oh Mercy Part 2 or whatever, you know, because it really did take on another, another dynamic in that beginning part of the song. And then Wicked Man... Wicked Man's always been that sleeper hit for us where people come up to us and say, I bought Lions and Wicked Man is my favorite song. What's hilarious is I wrote that song the day before we recorded it as an intro to the record and never thought much of it other than like, this will be an intro to the record. And we ended up um, thinking it would be kind of neat to kind of approach it as a real song as, a, as opposed to um, just a, an intro. So you surprised yourself with that song. Yeah, I really did. We recorded it with a guy named Kevin Gong in uh, um, Paducah, Kentucky for Lions. And we did Wicked Man. Well, we, uh, I was listening to a lot of Led Zeppelin at the time. And, and that whole record is pretty uh, guitar-driven. And I remember thinking the song Youngblood, it was going to be the first track of the record. And... Although it started with that cool guitar riff, I thought, man, it probably needs to be a little bit more subtle of an introduction than just that first hit. So I remember I had an acoustic guitar right next to me as I was driving. I don't suggest this um, while driving down the interstate. But I would just hit, I knew it was an E, and I I came up with that, no, I, I can't sing. And it was just going to be that for about 30 seconds into the song, and then... And then coming up with uh, that, those little verses, like, Hawks, man, I'm a bended knee, and all that. And I was like, well, that's neat. I guess when we recorded it, I thought it was going to be about a minute long because I'm horrible at time, being on time anywhere. 
but uh, um, it ended up being about two, two and a half minutes long. And I was like, well, this is a whole song. So I ended up uh, revisiting that and really kind of giving it its own, like every song that we redid, maybe other than Blood on the Church Floor, we really tried to revisit in a way, how could we make this song better? If we couldn't make it better, then we didn't want it to be on the record. You brought up Blood on the Church Floor, and that's the closer for Soul. And I've always been curious as to how that song came about. You, do you want to explain about the song and what inspired you to create it? Uh, uh, it's a really simple answer. Let me tell you the process of how it happened first. Like, uh, me and my friend David Curtis, who I mentioned earlier, we were um, sitting in my front room, and my father was there. We kind of had that idea, and I remember listening to... Uh, uh, Leonard Cohen's uh, Hallelujah. Oh, yeah. That's such a great song, and the way he delivered Hallelujah, the way he said that that slow Hallelujah. It felt like a praise worship song, the way he was doing it. And and still, yet, there was so much more than just that in it, I felt. And I thought, what if that was a, I don't know, what if we put for lack of a better term, like some balls behind that and really uh, speed it up a little bit and try to make that a sing-along uh, anthem. That is all I had. Uh, I had the hallelujah part. And in a matter of like 15, 20 minutes, me and David, uh, he was helping me. But for the most part, I came up with verses and choruses and, and everything. And I, I, not to sound over-spiritual, but... If God gave us any song, that would be it. That would be the one. It was pretty simple. I remember saying, I kept saying blood on the church floor for some reason. And I was like, well, I can't call it that. And I can't say that. That that would be a little sacrilegious, maybe. Come across as a little bit like irreverent. And I remember my dad getting a little upset uh, and saying, you don't think that people have died in the church? You don't think people have given their lives uh, and been martyrs in a church? You think that the church is uh, is like free of violence? Because you're wrong, <laughs> you know? Um, and he really got on my case. He goes, if God gives you something, you better have the guts to, to stand by it. And I remember jokingly, I want to say, well, I guess we're going to call it blood on the church floor then, <laughs> you know? Um, but... My father went on to be with the Lord three years ago, and and that's one thing that I feel like I learned from him, much like I learned from like Ray Charles, the way he was a pastor and the way he delivered songs, and uh, Ray Charles delivered songs, and the way my dad delivered his sermons had the same kind of disparity and had the same type of urgency that, that I think neither of them said anything they didn't believe and delivered it in a way that made the listener connect and believe it too. Well, Josh, is Ravenhill going to be touring Seoul? Do you think there's any chance you're going to actually come all the way up to Canada? I want to so bad. I've been, <laughs> I, like this last year was the first time I even seen Canada from Niagara Falls. And it looks so nice. And I would love to come up. Um, yes, we're going to be hitting the road in March for sure. I think we're going to, uh, we'll probably be at South by Southwest. And then we'll head up to the West Coast again. But shortly after that, we might take a month off or so and play some local shows. But then our plan is to go up to Buffalo, New York again and hit New York and Pittsburgh and, and Ohio and maybe play some shows with our, our label mates, Fever Fever. But 
Man, I would love for the opportunity to happen where we come up to Canada. Even if you can't hit Canada, at least we can still make it to Buffalo. Yeah, how far away are you from Buffalo? Not quite three hours. Well, that seems too long. We need to come to you. <laughs> that's that's it. You can come and stay over in Peterborough. There you go. <laughs> well, if anyone's listening to this that, would, that likes what they're hearing... Man, they're more than welcome to contact us on Facebook or any of our social medias. You can go to ravenhillband.com and message us, and I will get that specifically, and we would love to come to Canada. Hey, I almost forgot. Where can everybody get a copy of Soul? Uh, It'll be on just about anywhere online that you want to, uh, where you get your your medicine. (laughs) Uh, iTunes or Amazon, and we'll be on Pandora and Spotify. And then they can go to ravenhillband.com and, or slowspeakrecords.com and buy the record there if you want physical. And then we're, we are going to be coming out with vinyl uh, about a month or so after it releases. We'll be releasing the vinyl. But yeah, you'll definitely be able to get it through us for sure. Awesome. Well, Josh, it's been great having you back on The Antidote. Well, it was, it was fun, man. I appreciate it. And I, I listen to it every week. And, and uh uh, I think you were one of the guys, you, there are a handful of friends and people I met that really influenced me to do my own podcast and, and, uh, and you do a great job, Dave. Well, best of luck with that young blood podcast. And I guess the new album too. Thanks, man. <laughs>